Everybody, welcome back to Climate Transformed and our Women of Climate series, which is our way of celebrating 40 amazing leaders in the climate space, which uh, I think Nora Godanfar is here from Greentown Labs in Houston. But Nora, I, I get to the stage, when I look at the list of women who we are prioritising, I think we should just lose the phrase, lose the expression women and just focus purely on the fact that you guys are a bunch of awesome climate leaders who are driving this transition forward in a very practical manner. And I find myself using that word time and time again in terms of what we're trying to do with the transition because practicality plays a huge role. And I know that's something that you and I have spoken about at length. I'm going to let Noor introduce herself properly in a second, but she's the head of partnerships at Greentown Labs in Houston. For those of you who have been asleep and not knowing what's going on, anything in the climate <laughs> startup world, Greentown Labs is certainly in, might be in terms of funding and number of startups, the largest incubator in, globally? I think we definitely are the largest in North America. I don't have the numbers for globally, but it might be true. Because we live in a US-centric world, obviously, it means that the biggest <laughs> in the US is obviously the biggest in the world. So, no, and I want to get into what Greentown Labs does and more importantly about why Nora is devoting her time and intellect to Greentown Labs. Everybody, as per normal, I have no monopoly over good questions, so please pop them into the Q&A functionality at the bottom of the screen. Nora, before we dive into your presentation, tell us how you got here. Well, first of all, thank you so much for considering me to be one of the 40 women leaders. The list is very impressive. And I think big kudos to you in the diversity of the list. You have startups, you have people in government, you have people from industry. And I think that is sort of the key to how we think about climate action and how we sort of attack climate change from all angles. And so again, a big thank you to Climate Transformed and to you, Paul, for having me here. My journey to Greentown Labs has been very, very nonlinear. So I graduated from McGill University with a degree in sociology. And so completely not in the climate space or anything related to that. And I'm originally from the Middle East. And so I went back there with my degree in sociology. And lo and behold, there weren't many jobs in that space, <laughs> in that region. And so I actually went into internal audit working with PricewaterhouseCoopers. And I did that for three years. And even though I didn't have a business sort of background, a lot of these companies, these consulting companies don't care as much as what you've done, but they're really interested in your skill solving ability and your problem solving ability. And so I did that for three years. It allotted me a fantastic foundation in understanding risk controls, how to mitigate those risks, how to implement controls for that. Loved what I did, looked at a number of different industries, but ultimately realized that it wasn't as um, fulfilling for a long time career. And so I went back to grad school and I did city planning for two years. And so I'm originally from Syria and given just the civil war dynamics, the refugee dynamics, I really wanted to study how countries can sort of plan, especially in areas where conflict is more likely to happen, how they can plan for an influx of refugees without placing strain on a lot of their natural resources and their national resources. And so after graduating from MIT in city planning, I moved to Houston, actually, where my husband was and was there for two years. And I became a city planner. I looked at economic development studies, transportation plans, affordable housing plans, loved what I did. Again, I think it really gave me a fantastic understanding of how to bring different stakeholders together. City planning, urban planning is a very unique field in which you require a lot of soft and hard skills because you are planning at least a small part of a city and that is no easy feat. 
And then I heard about Greentown Labs. I hadn't known about it during my time in Boston and I had heard about it and it just seemed very interesting and very unique. And when I had applied for the role in Houston, the more I spoke to people at Greentown, the more I realized this was a sort of place that is not unlike many others in the space. And I was just very interested and I thought, you know, this was a crossroads in my career. And if I didn't take the job at Greentown Labs, I would forever wonder what my career trajectory would have turned out like. And so I did. And, and I'm very glad. And for those of the audience that don't know about Greentown Labs, I'll get into that more in my presentation. But this is just to say that climate tech, climate action, sort of focusing on the clean tech space, you don't have to have a specific background to sort of work in it. We have people who've studied physics. We've had people who've done business, who've done marketing. Myself, I have a diverse background. And it's more a cross-cutting across all industries. And we need people from all different types of backgrounds if we're going to solve these complex problems that are ahead of us. Right. The expression problem solver gets thrown around too much, right? So we'll let's put that to one side for a second. But I think that the urban planning side of things is an intriguing background for you because if I think about what the complexities of this push towards decarbonization, electrification, sustainability, and particularly from the urban planning side of things, I was chatting to a woman by the name of Laura Fox, who's going to be on Climate Transformed in a couple of weeks, and she runs City Bikes in New York. And just talking with her, and I hear a similar message from you, which is effectively the role in all of this to make it work is the integration of stakeholders and stakeholders with different priorities and different yeah. needs and different skill sets and the like, and to be able to sort of put them all together, which again, that's urban planning. Urban planning is just putting, <laughs> having this massive jigsaw in front of us, people with different priorities and putting it all together in something that resembles something coherent. Love for you to start your presentation. Let's, let's just dive into that and learn more about you and Greentown Labs. Perfect. Okay. So like we mentioned earlier in the conversation, Greentown Labs, we are the largest climate tech incubator in North America. That's just a fancy way of saying that we have startups that have technology to fight climate change. And so from the get-go, I think it's very important to know that Greentown Labs is a mission-driven organization. We are a nonprofit. We don't take any equity in the startups that go through our incubator program or our in-house partnerships accelerator program. And I think that makes us slightly unique to compare to other incubators and accelerator programs. Instead, we focus on building an inclusive community that convenes, connects, and inspires entrepreneurs and ecosystems to really advance climate solutions. So a little bit about our origin story. I love telling the story. We were founded when four startups out of MIT decided to share lab space up in Boston in Somerville, where we're headquartered. And when one was helping another with a grant application, they realized that this could really be something. And the reason that they were sharing space is because rent is so expensive. And as startups, you have to be very careful how, you know, where you're putting your money in. And so it just clicked. It made sense that there would be a sort of place and a sort of hub for climate-focused startups to convene and grow together. And so from 2011, we had four startups. We currently, at this point in time, have over 200 startups across both locations. And in the 11 or 12-year timeframe since we've been around, we've incubated over 500 companies. Those companies have created over 24,000 jobs. They've raised over $4 billion in funding. But truly, I believe the number that we are the most proud of is the 94% startup survival rate. 
And this actually just came out. We released our 2022 impact report in February. And so these are the latest numbers that we have, which just means that out of the 500 companies that have been incubated, 94% are still in business. I want to caveat and say that they're not all profitable, (laughs) but they are all still around. And I think that's just the testament to the network that we have at Greentown, the support that we provide our startups, but also the signaling that we're getting from the market that these solutions are important and people want to fund them. And I do want to point out, we opened our Greentown Houston incubator in 2021 on Earth Day. So in a couple of weeks, we'll have been around for two years. We currently have over 60 startups, which is a huge feat. As you can see here, it's a Greentown Somerville, five to six years to achieve that number. Now, obviously our brand recognition is better. I think the world is in a much different place for startups, especially those focused on clean tech or energy now than back then. But I still think the fact that we have so many startups that are interested that are based in Houston says a lot about why we moved to Houston. So The way it works, and I'll share a little bit of pictures if you're unfamiliar with Greentown, is members rent by the square foot in the lab or by co-working desk in the co-working space. And so by doing that, they get access to more than a million dollars in resources. Whether that's machine shop access where we have a CNC machine that's worth over 20K, saws and sanders, laser cutters, electronics labs, tool shops, Things because climate tech is hard tech, you're still prototyping and you're still building things. So you need these sorts of resources to really help out. We have access to software. So MathWorks, for example, will give each of our startups up to two years free of their engineering simulation software with all the bells and whistles. Again, this is a cost that our startups don't have to bear. Really, really beneficial. Amazon will give up to $10,000 worth of credits to use AWS. PwC will give up to $5,000 pro bono tax and accounting services. Vincent and Elkins will do the same for IP legal advice. And of course, we're continuously connected to the academia in the institutions of academia around us, the universities that are around us, because they're such incredible pipeline for Greentown and so many ideas stem from there as well. So wanted to just set the scenes, uh, provide some images of what our space looks like. So for example, this is up in Somerville. This is the co-working space. It's really fun. We once had a Japanese partner that came to the space and said, I love your messy American lab. (laughs) And I think that's such a really, I think, good way to phrase it. And he was He was enthralled and that's all that we can ask for. And so there are wires going everywhere. We have an incredible operation safety team that makes sure everything is running smoothly. And funny enough, actually Shell TechWorks, which is the innovation arm of Shell, was actually incubated out of Greentown, Somerville. And so when they first came to Greentown and they saw the lab, we were having dinner parties in the lab. We were skateboarding through the lab. There were balls flying in the air and they were like, no, 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 no. If we're going to actually come here and incubate out of here, we're going to sort of help you and sort of set the safety standards and measures that are needed. And so just an example of how some of our partners have helped and contributed to increasing safety and helping Greentown sort of up their game in terms of their lab operations. So this is one of our CNC machines here that our startups get to use. And of course, we also have events that we host on a regular basis, at least once a week, there's something going on at Greentown that brings together the network of investors and partners and collaborators. And that's really important as well. So who are our members and what are they focused on? So typically, no two Greentown members are the same. But if you were to survey 
all our startup members one point in time, you will see that our typical profile, a startup will have around five employees. They will have raised $8 million in funding. They are at a technology readiness level of six and will spend around three years at Greentown before they sort of graduate, get their own space. And one of the numbers that's really impressive is the median average raised is 200,000 before coming to Greentown. So that this number is 8 million, I think also speaks to the network of investors, the network of partners that we have that really help startups sort of fundraise and understand how to do that well. So on average, over that three-year period, the average Greentown Lab startup will raise $8 million whilst they're there. Correct. It's amazing. I do want to say, so this is an average number. So we've had like Sublime Systems, one of our startups that's decarbonizing cement making, raise a 40 million Series A, right? So that's kind of skew things one way or another. But typically, I would say we're seeing larger seed and Series A rounds. And I think that's just across the board. But again, just very impressive given the startups and, and what they're doing in Greentown. When we are looking at sort of the key areas that we focus on, it's the five largest greenhouse gas emitting sectors agricultures, buildings, electricity or energy, manufacturing, and transportation. Now, we used to sort of have a sixth bucket called resiliency and adaptation that covers things like carbon capture, which are industry agnostic, but still a huge part of climate tech. That's the traditional focus of our members. And I always like to include this slide because I think it adds a lot of nuance to where we fall in the ecosystem engagement. So if you are an entrepreneur, you just have an idea, you're too early for Greentown. Typically, you would have built a business plan. You've either licensed or been incorporated. You've raised some money. And when you are ready to prototype, to small-scale manufacture, to pilot your technology, that is the time that Greentown is right for you. And our partners support through joint development agreements and collaborations and investment. And I'll share a little bit more about that. But once you get to the ability where you're commercially deploying your tech and you have multiple customers, that's really when you sort of leave Greentown, you're ready to scale, you don't need our help anymore. And if there is one thing that I would want people to remember about Greentown, it's that we help de-risk early stage startups so that they can get to scale. That is what we do in a nutshell. And then we do it because we believe in climate action and the more startups, the more disruptive, innovative technology gets to scale, the better it is for everyone. And I am the director of partnerships. But I will say it, and I jokingly say this to our partners, I would love to say you are the most important client of Greentown Labs, but it is in fact our startups. Everything that we do focuses on them. And so we bring together all these different stakeholders so that they can succeed. I think that's really important to understand. You can see collaboration with so many of our partners and we we receive funding and, and donation and grants, and that's all incredible, but it is to support these startups, really nothing more than that. And so a couple of the notable public visits I I do want to highlight. We've had incredible, incredible press traction around the work that we're doing at Greentown. So for example, here in Somerville, we had Senator Ed Markey come on. He called this the Church of Climate Tech, which was a phrase I think a lot of us won't forget. We've had the CEO of Equinor come here just a few weeks ago. Up in Houston, we had Secretary Granholm, Secretary of Energy, come and sort of give a talk around actually 
diversity in entrepreneurship around energy and climate and what that means. And our incredible interim CEO, Kevin Taylor, also uh, joined her in that panel discussion. It was really wonderful to sort of see how we're thinking about that, both in the sort of startup stage, but also at a government level. And then, of course, we had the Prince and Princess of Wales <laughs> come here last November, and there was never a larger crowd outside of Greentown for that. But it was really incredible to sort of see the attention that we received because of that. And I think it signals that all of these institutions, whether public or private, acknowledge the importance of climate tech and the importance of innovation and entrepreneurship. And they want to shed a spotlight on that. So it's been really wonderful. We've had actually a couple of very high level private visits that I wish I could talk about, but those have been even equally as interesting as well. So I won't read through all of these, but when we're talking about ushering in a new climate tech era, when we're talking about Energy 2.0, there have been incredible highlights from our startup members. Emoji raised 139 million Series B. Syzygy Plasmonics has raised 76 million Series C. So they're creating hydrogen through a photocatalyst. Fervo Energy focused on geothermal is designing and engineering a fully integrated geothermal and direct air capture facility. H2OK Innovations was named Startup of the Year by Unilever. So there are so many different highlights. And when you think of climate tech in general, I think the first sort of gut feeling is to think solar, wind, the traditional platforms that we think of when we think of like, oh, clean energy. But it is so much more than that. We have companies like Simvita that are bioengineering microbes to use CO2 as feedstock. And we have companies like Reftera, which I'll talk about in a bit, that are using energy storage through a flywheel solution. We even had a company called Spice that built a robot kitchen and actually had a little robot kitchen restaurant in Boston before they were acquired by Sweetgreen. And so I think the breadth of climate tech the access to the technology that's available, it's very unique and it's not so laser focused as I think a lot of people would think. And of course, partners are extremely critical to our community. That is why we have a partnership program. And I'd like to highlight really three reasons why we have that program. First off, for a lot of our startups, the way things work in the lab is very different than the way they're going to be working out in the real world, like and on the field. And so they're able to tap into the access, the infrastructure, the facilities, the subject matter expertise of our partners to really see how this technology will play out on the field. I think that's very important. The second reason is for a lot of these multinational global companies, the larger you are, the more bureaucracy and red tape, the more difficult it is to innovate internally. And so they look externally to incubators like Greentown Labs and programs like Greentown Go to really be able to access and monitor the technology that they have. And I'll talk about this a little later, but when you're working with a startup, it's not so much as you see a technology, you like it, you meet a couple of times and you sign an agreement. I mean, in an ideal world, that would be perfect. But oftentimes it's years of cultivating that relationship with the startup and understanding their team and the direction they're headed. And Green Town Labs is such a good place to do that because you're you're here all the time. So for example, we have NL and Equinor and Aramco Ventures that all have desks out of Greentown and they get to interact with these startups on a day-to-day -day basis. 
And the third reason we have this program is the financial contribution that is required of these partners helps subsidize the cost for startups. So for Greentown to buy these state-of-the-art 3D printers and electronic equipment, it's expensive. And we wouldn't be able to do that without contribution from our partners and help there. So these are just some selected outcomes. I just wanted to highlight how there are so many opportunities for corporates and startups to engage, whether that's through investment and acquisition, whether that's through piloting the tech, collaborating on a project or a research and development contract, or oftentimes even becoming the customer of the startup. There is no shortage of the ways that you can collaborate. And because Greentown doesn't take any equity in the startup, we don't dictate the ways in which you collaborate. In fact, we encourage all forms of collaboration and it is up to you and the startup, you as a corporate partner in the startup to decide how you want to work together, which is amazing. And so I wanted to highlight a few case studies because I do think collaboration partnership is the key to sort of moving the needle forward, ensuring that we're getting to scale, we're helping these startups succeed, we're getting new tech around. And so RevTerra, it was one of the Houston founding partners. They are currently the success case study that we, we point to when we say we moved to Houston. They have a kinetic battery that enables rapid EV charging. And when they first joined Greentown, they had 125 square feet. They had two employees. It was just Ben and Patrick, the CEO and the CFO. And through the Greentown network, they were connected to Equinor. They were connected to SCF Partners, which is a local private equity firm. And those two partners were the lead partners in their Series A. And they raised a 6 million Series A. They expanded to over 3,000 square feet in our lab and are actually building their full-scale prototype now. And this is exactly what Greentown does. We, we work with startups that might be two or three employees, very small prototyping space. We give them access to the partners and really help them grow. And that's wonderful. We're very, very excited to see what Terra does next. A case study on project collaboration is one that I had just spoken to BP Floor and Carbon Free about just last week at the Decarb Connect conference. And this is, so Carbon Free, what they do is they capture the CO2 and they convert it into specialty chemicals, something very unique. They took part in our Carbon to Value initiative. It's a sort of three-year accelerator program that we run with the Urban Future Lab in New York. And through that program, they met with Floor, which is an EPC, and then they agreed to help them with their construction and their engineering on their full-scale facility. And after that happened, BP sat, came, came to them, and BP Ventures had been a longtime investor and was like, you know what? Let's use the technology on a lot of our facilities around the world, which I think is huge. This is a perfect example of the ecosystem coming together, collaborating to sort of drive tech innovation. And then finally, the last case study I want to talk about is the Enel Raptor Maps Mass CEC one. So at Raptor Maps is a startup that uses AI, drone-based thermal imaging to pinpoint issues, electrical issues. And so Enel Green Power, they had known Raptor Maps for three years or so at Greentown. And when Mass CEC stepped in and actually offered a grant to sort of do a pilot, that is when they were able to come together and sort of pilot in one of their solar farms. And through that piloting of the technology, they realized that this could be sort of an incredible way to learn about solar production and increase solar production. And now they are every single NL green power solar asset uses as technology. And this stemmed from a connection that came out of Greentown. 
So with that, I think I've shared a number of different case studies for collaboration. Again, I can't stress enough that it is not one person can come in and sort of solve all the problems. It requires money. It requires expertise. It requires disruptive tech and all of those coming together. And I think in an almost serendipitous way, and here at Greentown, we like to create that serendipity as much as possible. And then finally, I just wanted to talk about this book that I think really hits home a lot of the things that I just discussed. So it's called The Wizard and the Prophet. It's written by Charles Mann. And essentially the premise touches upon the impending destruction of our planet. So in 40 years, we're estimated to reach a population of 10 billion. If we continue on the same path that we're on, will it be detrimental to our planet and subsequently to all of us? So what should we do about it? And the book really places people in two camps, the wizards and the prophets. And the prophets believed that we needed to cut back on consumerism, over farming, over population. And their mantra was cut back or we will all lose. The wizards, on the other hand, had a different mantra, innovate, and only in that way can everyone win. And that technology and human invention can overcome these problems. And the book sort of details an almost battle between environmental activism and technical progress. And myself and a lot of other people don't see it as one way or the other, but there's a lot more nuance to that. It's two sides of the same coin. But I do think that wizards offer slightly more hope about the future. And I get to work with wizards every day at Green Town Labs. Presentation was interesting at all. Get in touch with me. Here's my email. But Paul, looking forward to discussing the presentation and anything else with you. No, thanks so much. Wizard of the Prophet is a favourite of mine because you can rephrase that to pragmatists and idealists. And there's a bunch of ways to think about it. We need more wizards in our lives is the short answer. Let's go back to Greentown Labs was obviously a Boston, it stemmed from Boston. Obviously, I'm going to make an assumption that a lot of the early companies stem from MIT and, and maybe from Cambridge in, in general. Why Houston? Why was Houston the natural was an organic next step. And why Houston over London or London? Why Houston over Singapore? Why Houston over uh, Los Angeles? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Well, sorry, well, why Houston over San Francisco? Yeah, that's a great question. And actually, so a couple of reasons why. The first is when we're thinking of impact, San Francisco is completely, I mean, riddled with incubators and accelerators and programs and funding in this particular space. So when our former CEO and our board decided to move to Houston, one of the reasons was there isn't a place like this in Houston. There aren't a ton of incubators, even in, we're thinking regionally in Texas, which is the production of energy alone in Texas is immense. It's the Houston's the energy capital of the world. Texas produces so much incredible energy. I think, I believe it's number one, if not number two in the U.S. in terms of energy production. So impact here is huge because there isn't something like Greentown Labs. There aren't as many opportunities. I always like to say, oftentimes we think of the United States as having two coasts, East Coast and West Coast, but Houston, we're, we're at the third coast. There's a third forgotten coast. <laughs> and so I think that was the first reason. And the second reason is when we actually think about climate action and we are serious about sort of fighting climate change, what better place to do that than from the belly of the beast in Houston, where a lot of these oil and gas incumbents 
that are now sort of transitioning to frame themselves as energy players are headquartered and produce so much of their products, of their emissions here. And I think our board was was initially hesitant to sort of come to Houston, but have very quickly seen the benefit of doing so and the engagement and the welcome that we've received. Our CEO went on her first trip to our former CEO on her first trip to Houston in 2017, didn't even know if she could say the word clean tech. She was worried that people would say, you can't say that here. But in fact, she found the opposite. She found hunger and excitement around that because a lot of these companies, although they are headquartered in Houston or have some of their largest operations in Houston, don't just operate there, right? They operate in Europe and they operate in other parts of the country. And they have seen the sort of writing on the wall and the and the drive from shareholders to think about transitioning to cleaner, more renewable sources of energy. And it just made sense. And they would say that if we had moved there maybe even two or three years earlier, it would have been too soon. The time at which we moved right around after the start of the pandemic, after the ERCOT blackouts, the Texas freeze that took place, I think that was just a signal that a lot of people understand why we're coming to Houston and in fact, are eager to work with us and are eager to welcome us and are eager to learn from us and from our startups. Got it. So let's go back to wizards and profits for a second. I'm going to make an assumption that there are quite a few profits who thought that you going to Houston was a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> so, and again, if, if I look at your list of, of partner companies, Ramco stands out. If you look at a Ramco from 36,000 feet, you see the world's biggest oil company. Right. Right. If you look at Exxon, correct me if I'm wrong, the second biggest oil company, I think. It's Exxon's second, I think. Tell me about the pushback that you received for partnering with large energy companies, which in many circles, in the profit circles, they are viewed through an incredibly negative lens. But talk a little bit about how that stigma is incorrect. Yeah, I think that's a very true sentiment. We have received sort of public pushback, pushback even from some of our startups. From And the team itself, I think, as we continue to grow the Greentown Labs team, we're still on a daily basis sort of discussing, looking at strategy, making sure that what we're doing is best for ourselves, for our startups, and for the environment. But I think one of the reasons that we... We do work with companies like Shell and Chevron and Aramco is that they internally have really committed towards the energy transition and have set aside a lot of money to help startups like ours do well. So, for example, Aramco or late last year announced a $1.5 billion sustainability fund. That's billion with a B. That's a lot of money that can really help startups scale. Granted, I do believe, and this is you know, Noor talking and not Greentown Labs, there are historical mistakes that a lot of these companies have made. And there needs to be sort of acknowledgement of the past and almost, I'm careful to use the word apology, but almost like setting your cards on the table and saying, here's what we have done. And we know that these past practices haven't been great. But here's what we want to do moving forward and how we want to rectify that and how we want to ensure that those mistakes aren't repeated. And I'll give you an example from my sort of urban planning days. A lot of city planning in the 30s and 40s and 50s was extremely racist and extremely divisive. And you had highways that tore through primarily neighborhoods filled with minorities and people of color. And that was a huge part in, in sort of 
being a barrier to them accumulating wealth. There was a lot of redlining and the practice was very, very harmful. And a lot of cities, city of Austin, city of Houston, and I can speak because I've worked directly with those entities, have issued public apologies about their previous practices and have publicly stated what they want to do differently moving forward. And I think that piece is very important because a lot of communities, especially from an environmental perspective, have been harmed by some of these industries and facilities and have been fined by the EPA. And there are higher cancer rates in Baytown compared to other places in Texas. And that's true. But at the same time, if we ostracize people and we don't bring them to the table, where does that get us? If we have almost a quarter of the population in Houston is working in energy or energy adjacent industries. If those people aren't invited to take part of the energy transition, how will they feel? I think embittered and not wanting to take a part of it and actually seeing it as a threat rather than an opportunity where you can add to your skill level and you can work in a job where you feel good about what you're doing. And a lot of these companies understand that. And as the workforce continues to change and and we have new graduates going into these companies and asking for direct change. I think we see that really, really strongly. And a lot of the work that Greentown does with these companies, they might not publicly be putting on a face of like, here's our strategy for the next 20, 30 years in this specific area. But we discuss this with stakeholders and um, there are a lot of changes and oil and gas will look very, very different in 40 years. And actually that is one of the reasons when we came to Houston Mayor Sylvester Turner, he had that vision because he wanted to sort of avoid the demise of the automobile industry in Detroit. And oil and gas is that that's what Houston does and that's what it was built on and that's sort of its legacy. But it's not going to remain that way if we don't invest in energy transition in Houston. And so I think working together is one of the best ways to ensure that everybody wins. Right, because there's no reason why Houston shouldn't remain the U.S.'s home to energy production right? Exactly. It just doesn't necessarily have to be oil and gas. It can be in alternatives. And it's ironic. I'm, I'm sitting here in Chicago, in my very posh, <laughs> very wide suburb of Chicago, looking at the expressway about a mile and a half to my left here. That's a racially dividing line in Chicago. It just, it, yeah. it just is. And I think that the other thing that we often lose sight of with a lot of the companies that you have on your partner list there, Noor, is the one thing that many of them have in common is they, they can execute at scale. And I think that the enormity of, well, you use the word hard tech, which I think is uh, continues to be underappreciated about that this is, you're not solving the climate crisis with software, right? Let's start there. We're not doing that with software, right? That the infrastructure and big projects and scalability is so important. And there are a lot of companies that are founded in Houston whose sole business is scalability right. and big projects and deployment of billions of dollars of complicated assets. I think that there's not enough appreciation that's made for startups that they have to take something from producing one of something in a Greentown lab to producing tens of millions of something. Absolutely. For them to be a, a viable decarbonization solution. Yeah, absolutely. They have the expertise because they've done that using other products. And even though they're working with startups, doesn't mean that they don't have their own internal R&D that's sort of also going through these same issues. And they just have all that money, all that subject matter expertise, facilities around the world. And they, I think, are excellent at understanding how to divvy up risks because an early stage startup is a risky venture, regardless of what you're talking about. 
And a lot of these companies need a partner that is willing to take on that risk and willing to show them how to control it, mitigate it. And that's why I think collaboration is so important because you'll have the EPC take some risk, you'll have a corporate venture arm take a risk, you'll have investors take some risk, and you really divvy it up in a way that is fruitful for them to be able to move forward. And that is, I think, quite unique to sort of these large mega house industrial players. So you were talking before about your five plus one areas of focus. You've mentioned industrial facilities, many industrial facilities you have for like, talk a little bit about what you're doing in life sciences. Because for me, agriculture is going to be the biggest is for me of those six verticals, ag is the hardest one to abate. Yeah. Right. Because if you look at, say, John Dora's book called Speed and Scale, yeah. one of the great flaws in that argument is talking about reducing emissions from agriculture is that we have to get beef, well, animal beef consumption particularly down by 50% by 2050, yet, but we're going to double our caloric intake globally in over that same period. The math just doesn't work out. Right. So ag sciences for me is the, is the hard to abate of hard to abate industries, right? Tell me what you're doing in life sciences, because obviously at the end of the day, that's a chemistry lab. That is a chemistry lab. What are you doing in that regard? Yeah. So we actually have a biosafety level two wet lab, which is a hard chemistry lab in headquarters in Somerville. And a lot of that will be focused on ag tech, not everything, but think alternative proteins, right? We have a company here called Tender. They actually produce a lot of these alternative proteins. We get to sample some of them when they were able to. And so that's really great. We have a company called Moonflower Technologies that essentially is doing something extremely unique. They have a patented hydroponic produce stand that they've rolled out in over 30 Kroger in Houston. And essentially, it allows the produce to continue to grow until you take it up from the produce stand. So it's promoting more local, um, you know, more local uh, agriculture. So it actually grows within the Kroger. It does. It grows within the Kroger. And if it's there long enough, you'll see it start to flower because it's still getting water and it's still getting the nutrients that it needs. So it's a lot of fun. And the CEO of Moonflower Technologies, he's ex-Bayer, ex-NASA, and his whole idea is to eventually have vertical urban agricultural farms that contain that sort of stand everywhere and sort of decreases because the cost to ship a lot of agriculture is expensive and the cost to make sure that it remains at the right temperature is really expensive as well. And so if we can do it locally in a way that's sustainable, I think that's a huge one. So that's one of our startups that's doing that as well. And then we have, of course, a lot of startups focused on soil, on soil carbon sequestration, on ensuring soil quality, because that is really important. And we've seen, especially John Doerr's book mentions how soil quality has degraded just through unsustainable agricultural practices, through over farming, through a number of other issues. And so a lot of our startups like Agzen and a couple of others that are evading my mind right now really focus on soil. Got it. What companies do you say no to? Or what technologies have you said no to? And the reason I bring this up is, so a dirty little secret out there is that private equity firms, obviously a different stage to where you are, but most private equity firms still can't invest in nuclear technology because they've still got internal restrictions based that go back to Fukushima. Is there anything that you won't look at? Yeah. So a bit of background on how we do accept startups into Greentown. There's a member application. That application is, you fill it out. It's very detailed. It asks you questions on if you're making revenue, if you're tracking emissions, that sort of a thing. 
that application was reviewed internally, and then we offer an interview to every single startup that applies. That is standard. We have an internal committee that makes a decision based on the application and the interview. And then that decision is you sort of taken up to our board of directors and the board of directors has the final say on who gets into Greentown and who doesn't. And I will say we typically have a 30 to 35% acceptance rate. So out of, for example, 120 applications that we see a year, 40 of them, 40 of those startups are admitted. I think that also speaks to the sort of the quality, why our success rate is so high, because we really focus on startups that have a clear path, have a clear strategy, sort of know what they're doing. In terms of what we won't look at, we won't look at anything that is not climate focused, period. So any aerospace, any retail, any biomedical, like that's not Greentown sweet spot. It just wouldn't make sense. We won't accept you if you are too early. And I mentioned that. So I think scale is really important. Sometimes if you are just also doing extremely well and you've raised a series D, you don't really need to green town. We've actually told some startups like you're doing fine without us. You don't really need us. And I think a couple of the things that I've noticed, and I'm not directly on the sort of the committee that looks at these startups, if the technology creates as much, if not more emissions than sort of what's current, we won't accept it. So I think that's like a big key. Have you got an example of that? I'm not at liberty oh, to reveal no, 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 the no, startups no. that have no, no, applied. No, no, no. Yeah, unfortunately. But another thing, I actually don't know if we've had any startups in the nuclear space, and I can't speak to that. But the gist of it, if it's in climate, if you're reducing emissions, if you're ready to prototype, you're in. Got it. Give us some examples of things that are exciting you. When you look at your suite of companies, not individual companies themselves per se, but areas of innovation where there's a gap between the negative perception of how quickly we can get there and the actual practicality and sort of where we are on the ground, which may be moving faster than we think. Yeah. I think hydrogen, especially with the DOE pushed for the hydrogen hubs, is a huge one. I know Houston received it encouraged for their application, and I believe are submitting the final application this week. There will be so much activity around hydrogen. I think a lot of the technology was already there. The IRA subsidy was huge. We actually had a startup based in Europe that moved to Greentown in Houston because of the IRA subsidy. And just it made more economic sense to be here. Houston, of course, was just made sense too. So I think that was huge um, that we have a European startup where Europe has traditionally been more ahead of the game, but with the passing of this very large bill, just see more opportunity in the US as of now. You've just scared the living daylights out of Brussels, <laughs> don't you? Because that's Europe's worst fear. Yeah. And that's what it's funny. You think about the political pushback that you hear out of Europe and you go, oh, that's Europeans doing what they're doing. That's the concern. That writes the concern. Right. I do think that it'll always be a sort of back and forth, which startups are able to get funding where and visa issues will always be a concern. But to doubt the importance of legislation is to not really live in the real world. And I think the IRA has sort of proved that lot of interest around grid connectivity. I have never seen, like I was at Sarah Week this past March. It's been dubbed the Davos of energy and it's held in Houston every year. I have never seen so much discussion around grid connectivity and ensuring that we have technology that is able to connect efficiently, to be able to avoid sort of what happened in the Texas freeze and just make sure that we maintain energy security just throughout any sort of emergency. 
So I think those are the two really, really big areas that I would focus on. And not technology-focused, a lot of talk about permitting, a lot of talk about needing the right people and sort of a very technical, like, electrician background. We don't have enough. And then, of course, I think I would be remiss to say that carbon capture, carbon storage, carbon utilization is on everyone's mind, especially as the cost of capturing said carbon continues to decrease once we get under $50 a ton. A lot of very large players are interested in that because it's one of the, and I don't want to say quick wins, but it's easy to sort of adapt an existing facility to, to add on versus like you have to completely create something from that's new. And so we have a lot of startups in that space as well. In Houston and in Somerville, I would say it's equal. It's not location dependent because of how important it is. So where does Greentown Labs go next? Is it Greentown Labs Bangalore? Is it Greentown Labs Berlin? Is it Greentown Labs Singapore? Greentown Labs San Paolo? Is there an international expansion? I'm sure you talk about it. Right. Is this on the cards in the next three to five years? I absolutely wouldn't rule anything out. Probably not in the next three to five years. I am thinking long-term horizon five to 10. We've had a lot of interest from international stakeholders, from sister cities that have said that we are also an oil and gas legacy city and we're really looking forward to changing that perception and Greentown would be perfect for that. Singapore just comes to mind straight away, doesn't it? Yeah, Singapore is a big one. London is incredible when we're thinking of climate tech. I think they are doing incredible work as well. Nothing, I think, currently that's for our CEO and, and the, the other you know, the the side. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say nothing is off the table. We just want to right now, like the team on the ground in both locations wants to make sure our startups are happy, they're continuing to scale, and that Greentown continues to stand out amongst sort of there are other incubators that are also now focused on Greentown was probably their very first one. But in the 11, 12 year span, like it's very healthy. That just means that there's fertile soil for climate tech. Mm-hmm. We're very happy about it, but continuing to distinguish Greentown Labs as a sort of prototyping, small scale manufacturing, hard tech focused space compared to some of the other ones. And we'll see what happens from there. So, and Noor, just to finish with you, what yeah. obviously you're very happy. It sounds like you're really happy with Greentown Labs and the like, but what does your career path look like going forward? If you were to sit back and go, what's the ideal situation for you? Might be with Greentown Labs or not. Tell me, where are you in five to 10? If there's one thing my career has taught me is that I can't possibly predict what's (laughs) next because I've done so many different things. I would love to look at and selfishly look at a Greentown Labs expansion in the Arab world where there is a lot of oil and gas legacy, there is a lot of need for energy security, and there's a lot of talent that is overlooked because of political tensions, because of geopolitical conflict. I think that's very fertile soil. I would love to be doing something like that or something in the energy innovation space over there. I think that's where my heart lies. And and if it's with Greentown, that would be great. If it's not, I'm excited for the sort of next adventure. I was going to say, you probably don't have a great deal of time, but that'd be an amazing thing to announce at COP. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. You better get I'm, on to it. 
Well, thank you so much. Of course. We love what you do. Greentown Labs is a favourite of ours and we'd love to find ways to work with you and work with Greentown Labs further. It's a wonderful addition to this very complicated ecosystem that we need to have to get to where we need to be. So everyone, we'll get this recorded up on climatetransform.com. We'll put it on YouTube. We'll put it everywhere. Nor, thank you. It was really great to chat. Thank you, Paul. And thank you to Climate Transformed for having these like hard conversations. I've watched a few of your other interviews like with David from Vera. And I do think you're having the hard conversations that people need to hear. And, and I love that. So thank you again for having me on. Very honored, very humbled. And uh, hopefully our paths cross soon and there's more collaboration to come. Absolutely. Thanks so much.